All About You is a memoir. I have tried to recreate events, locales, and conversations from my memories of them. In order to maintain their anonymity in some instances, I have changed the names of individuals and places. I may have changed some identifying characteristics and details, such as physical properties, occupations, and places of residence. Chapter 21 And Unto Her a Child is Born My longing for finding my biological mother and family increased more and more as I grew older and more independent of the household that raised me, but never so much as when the dreaded biological clock sounded its alarm in my soul. I was probably ordering a second, or third, scotch and soda and lighting a cigarette when it went off. I tried to hit the snooze button, fourth scotch, Hey, mister, do you have a light? But it wouldn't leave me alone. I was 28 years old, and I discovered I wanted a baby of my own. I did not have an easy time getting pregnant. First, I had to convince my husband to let me. I asked almost every day for months. At first, it was subtle. So, this would make a nice baby's room, wouldn't it? Do you think a baby would get all my curly hair? I wonder what kind of mother I would be. And then, it got more aggressive. If I don't ever have a baby of my own, it will haunt me for the rest of my life, and that, Mr. Man, will be all your fault. He finally caved. Then, I actually had to make one. Well, that shouldn't be too hard. Abandon all forms of birth control and schedule romantic and seductive evenings on exactly the 12th, 13th, and 14th days of my cycle. Perfect. Well, that didn't work. The months passed with no positive results. So I added the 11th and the 15th day too, and after several anxiety-producing months, I had the only husband in the tri-state area that cried after sex. I was in total shock. I wanted this, and I was ready, so why wasn't it happening? Primarily, my life was charmed, and I got the things I wanted and worked for. I got the boys I liked, I got into the college I wanted, I got the jobs I wanted and needed to make a living, If I went shopping, I scored the cutest outfits. Things had often gone well for me. Jealous yet? Hold on to that thought. The one thing I wanted, the one thing I would have traded my many blessings to have, was a biological connection. Whether that be my birth mother or a child of my own. The thing most everyone I knew had and never gave a second thought to. It made me very sad every month when I had, yet again, failed. I turned to my mother to share in the sadness, thinking this was another chance for us to bond. The hope for a child of your own is a strong one, and I wondered if she had cried at the monthly reminder that she had failed to conceive. How long before adoption was discussed? Was it her idea, or was it Daddy's? Did he see the sadness in her and offer a solution to please his wife? Did Mom simply give up? I longed to ask her about it and share in this important opportunity to connect. I just can't seem to get over the sadness every time, I shared. All I see are pregnant women and babies everywhere I go. What was that like for you? What was it like? She asked, clearing off the dishes from the lunch we had shared with Daddy, just like old times. Not being able to get pregnant. She straightened up immediately and looked at me as if I had just insulted her to the core. I could most certainly have had all the children I wanted. Wait, then why did you adopt me? 
I thought Dad said, Elizabeth, I was not going to do that again. That was the most unpleasant thing I had ever done. I can remember telling the doctor that I just wanted to go home and have this over with. She turned her back to me and faced the sink. So, I was so confused at this point. When did you decide to adopt? Elizabeth, I don't know. That was your daddy's decision. Ask him. Sting. Bonding opportunity crashed and burned. Conversation over. When my daughter Daphne was born 20 days before my 31st birthday, her birth filled up so many holes in my heart that nothing ever else could. Little pink spackle covering the dents and scuffs, smoothing things over, a new shiny coat of love. Her tiny spirit poured into my soul and filled the empty places with effervescence. She was delivered by emergency cesarean section, and I only got a glimpse of her before she was whisked out of the room. The wait to get her back was the most prolonged agony of my life. Where was my baby? What are they doing? Why is it taking so long? I had to hold her. I wanted to look deeply into her eyes. I needed her. My arms were emptier than they had ever been. No one could console me. I felt myself getting angry. I snapped at everyone who didn't understand my anxiety. The baby is fine. They would tell me, I know she is fine. I exclaimed, I just want her back now. Bring her back. It was then that I realized my heart ached for my birth mother. She must have gone through the very same thing. The baby, taken quickly from the room, nurses with hushed voices. I couldn't imagine the pain she must have felt to just let her daughter go. She never even saw me? Was anyone there to comfort her? I've never felt such a relief as when my daughter arrived, all tightly swaddled and pink. I had a daughter of my own, with my blue eyes and downy curly hair, She looked at me, and for the first time in my life, I looked back at somebody I was related to. She was blood of my blood and flesh of my flesh. It was a miracle. I had so much love for this tiny little creature in my arms, I didn't want her out of my sight. I was anxious every time someone else tried to hold her. If there is a God and I think there is, they sent me the most wonderful answer to my prayers. It was as though they saw my sadness and my craving to be like someone else, to have the same face as someone else, and then they gave me a sweet little doppelganger. As soon as she was born, I was aching for another. I couldn't stand the thought of her being an only child. She needed a brother or a sister. It took some convincing with my husband, who was content with our threesome, but her sweet brother Aiden quickly followed her birth. Here was another child who looked so much like me, another chunky little gift from my body to admire. I said things like, he has my eyes, and look, those are my toes. I was going to fill my family and create all these little Liz's so I could see DNA at work. When they were grown, I could send them all over the state of South Carolina, and one day some stranger would stop them. Why? They would say, you look exactly like, insert name of my birth family here, I must lead you to them. We would be a team of blue-eyed truth seekers using our powers for good. Our mission? 
fight injustice, right that which is wrong, and serve all mankind. Or, wait, is that just the Super Friends? Chapter 22 Six Months Old I often wondered about this gap of time between my birth and my placement with my parents. Six months seemed like such a long time to me. At first, I liked to soothe myself with the idea that she must have tried to keep me. She saw the baby and screamed to be reunited. Call it off, she would demand, and the baby would be given back to her, nurses exchanging nervous glances with each other, wondering if this was the right thing to do. My beautiful mother, sweat plastering her dark hair to her forehead, would hold me closely and coo over her daughter. The doctor would be called back in. You have to speak with her. The concerned nurse's voices whisper as I hurried back to the delivery room, their soft-soled shoes padding down the shiny tile floor of the brightly lit hospital hallway. The doctor is not successful in his attempts. The new mother, strong with emotion and possessiveness, clings to her newborn. My last hope of that dream was extinguished by the report I had just gotten. She never even saw me. But who did? Who took this tiny baby and sacrificed sleep and freedom to care for me? Who rocked me to sleep and tucked me in? Who sang lullabies to me? Who dressed me in the pink smocked dress I met the butlers in? Who kissed my chubby little cheek one last time? Did I love that woman? Did I cry when they took me away from her? Did my fat arms reach out and did I twist and turn in the caseworker's arms, trying to see her face until they drove me away? With all four of my children, I looked at them very closely the day they turned six months old. By then, they could sit up. They watched my every move as I drifted around them doing our day-to-day routines. When I entered a room, they could look up and see me, huge smiles of recognition and joy covering their sweet little faces. If something startled them, they grabbed for me, trusting that I was there for them. If they were tired, they reached for me, knowing I would comfort them. Was there any separation anxiety for me? Was it easy for me to trust this new family and feel safe in their arms? How long did it take? There's a picture of me at my new home where I lived in Mount Pleasant. I'm about to be proudly toted about town to meet my new family. I'm sitting on my new mother's lap, my arm stretched out to its fullest length, holding her at bay, my face serious as I stare a hole right through the camera. Was this how it was for me? Or was I just caught in a moment as a typical little baby, unwilling to bend to the wishes of her first photographer? Was I a difficult child to bond with? Was I scared and shy at first? Is this why we never had the bond I so longed for? Was it my fault? Chapter 23 The Bilo Effect I don't think my mother has ever completely forgiven me for being, in her opinion, a difficult child to raise. It's not like I was obstinate or lazy. Quite the opposite. I was loud and demonstrative with my emotions. Funny how part of that word is demon. 
My elaborate excuses for unsavory behaviors or dramatic interpretations of why I needed some attention from her began to work on one of her very last nerves, if you take her word for it. For her, raising a child meant not having to hear from it all that often. I was not gifted with the ability to suppress my feelings. They poured out all over the house and ruined her idea of the perfect family. It felt like I added aggravation to her perfectly ordered world. It's really no wonder that she favored my brother, and as an outcome, he has mastered the art of living a life that no one in the family actually knows anything about. Mom and I do our best talking on the phone. It's not easy going over to her house to see her. All of my bad memories are tainted with the smells of her home. Eucalyptus, the faint smell of mold, Yankee Candle, and sadness. I walk in the front door and am bombarded with memories. I know she feels this as well. So walls go up and old patterns repeat themselves. I don't think my mother is happy unless she's complaining. Any good news is received with immediate rejection of perfect bliss. Vacations? Too expensive. Leading role in the latest play? So many lines to memorize. Another child on the way? Oh dear, again? If you tried to convince her of the happiness she should be sharing with you, she would respond, well, anyway. That's Catherine Butler, for we are done for this conversation. Some people see the glass half full, and some people see it half empty. My mother's glass was always full of something she didn't like. As my mother aged, I took her to doctor's appointments. As we went from one new specialist to the next, there was always an abundance of forms to fill out. My favorite part was, person to be contacted in case of emergency. Put down Jonathan, Mom said, looking through her pocketbook to grab a wilted handkerchief to dab her watery eyes. Jonathan? Are you kidding me, right? Do you see him here anywhere, Mom? I'm here right now. What the hell? Well, anyway. She sent me to the Bilo, a local grocery store, to fill her prescriptions now that driving was not easy anymore. You are Catherine Butler's daughter? The girl behind the counter brightly asked. The pharmacist stopped his careful inventory of the back to come around the aisle and smile at me. Oh, we just love Catherine. She is the dearest lady. You've got one wonderful mother, always so sweet and kind. You are so lucky. I often wondered if they saw the confusion on my face. Did it slip out behind the facade of good southern daughter? Thank you. She's very sweet. I say the words. I know they are true. I just want some more of it for me. Mom's Parkinson's disease not only robbed her of her ability to drive, it also left her unable to cook. I decided that I needed to devote a few days a week to running her around and helping prepare meals that she could easily serve herself throughout the day. That was a big undertaking. I was just about to open a new business, but I put this on hold. Once again, the opportunity to bond with my mother had arisen, and if we didn't get it right this time, we were running out of time. We started right away. I went to her house on certain mornings. She always had a list of things she would like to do and places she would like to shop, ending, as always, with the Bilo. We would arrive at our location, and I would help her from the car. We got a cart she could lean on, or I grabbed her cane from the back of the car so she wouldn't tire out too quickly. 
We entered our location, her haunts, she called them, and most of the salespeople recognized her good away. Miss Catherine, they'd say, don't you look good today. I'm so glad to see you. Mom thanked them, exchanged niceties, and we walked away. I was never introduced. I might as well have been the hired help. It started to bother me, so I said something as we walked away from one of the salespeople. I mimicked Mom's southern accent. And this is my lovely daughter Elizabeth. Isn't she just the sweetest old thing for carrying me all over creation? Well, anyway, she said looking right ahead. We made our way to the garden store, her favorite. My mother spent her entire life creating the most beautiful yards and gardens around her home. She even won awards for her hard work, until her disease completely robbed her of one of the things she loved more than anything, her yard. She insisted on shopping for it and maintaining it. She spent a small fortune trying to save her precious yard through the years. She hired a man who wandered the neighborhood looking for yard work for cash. I don't know what I would have done without that colored man helping me, she said. Oh my God, Mom, what color is he? Elizabeth, he's black. Well, you can just say that, Mom. No one says colored anymore. Well, anyway, I can't do a thing without him. He's my best friend. Mom, he's not really your best friend. You're paying him for all this work. He's not just stopping by to visit. On this particular day, as we wandered through the garden department, the manager immediately spotted her and hurried over to speak with one of his favorite customers. They were so happy to see one another as they chatted about the latest pretty bloomer or the latest annoying blight. Finally, he looked at me and introduced himself. Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm Andy. Miss Catherine has been a valued customer here for years. We just love our gardens and our little visits, don't we, Miss Catherine? We sure do, she smiled coyly. Was she flirting? That's wonderful, Andy, I said, taking his strong and calloused hand in mine, thrilled to finally be noticed. I'm Liz Duran. I'm her daughter. His eyebrows rose, momentarily disappearing into his hairline. Daughter, he said, glancing at Mom and back at me. Why well, didn't know you had a daughter? He turned his inquisitive eyes back to Mom. You have a son, though, right? The next week, I called Mom at our usual time on Monday morning to discuss her plans. Oh, Elizabeth, I'm going to have to call you back. I have someone at the house right now. Oh, sure, no problem, I said. Who's there? I'm interviewing a girl that's going to start driving me around and helping me run my errands and cook for me, she stated very plainly and very matter-of-factly. Well, anyway... Chapter 24. I knew it. I read my non-identifying information over and over the day it arrived. I felt happy and sad. I felt exhilaration and rage. I laughed. I cried. I called several friends to let them know the results, carefully reading sections to them. I could not contain my feelings. I was finally justified and knew that everything I had felt about my birth mother deep down was true. She did look like me. I knew it. She was everything my happy heart had imagined her to be. I knew it. 
I felt her pain for the loss of the baby she had given up and then immediately questioned my feelings. Was she sorry? The report said that she cried a lot. Did she think about it? How often did it come to mind? How long before February 29th would come and go and she wouldn't even notice? There was so much to think about, so much that needed to be investigated and solved. Over the next years, and through many bottles of wine, my best friend Vicki and I became experts at carefully evaluating every word of this document. It was our Rosetta Stone to the truth. We even learned to count the size of the blocked out letters based on the typewriter spaces below them. We knew she had a six-letter first name. We saw the bottom of a letter peeking out from under the tape, and that gave us more clues. We now knew her name ended with an E. We were sure now where she was from. Part of the city's name was clearly peeking out under another piece of tape. She mentioned the family had a blank home on blank. We deciphered those spaces, spelling out a beach home on the Isle of Palms or Polly's Island. Oh, we were learning more and more. We deduced that the gift shop was Ziegler's. It was a family-owned store that had been part of her hometown for many years. We called Ziegler's. Hello, my name is Liz. I'm calling from Charleston. We told the nice man who answered the phone that we were long-lost family members hoping to create a family tree. We had heard tell of a cousin, but we were not sure of her name. We did know that she had been a tad of a scandal to the family. She had a child out of wedlock. You might remember who this is and help us get in touch with a family we never knew. The man I spoke to on the phone had been there for a long time, but he wasn't the owner in 1967 or 1968, and he couldn't begin to know who it was we were looking for as I had many different girls working there. I left my number just in case. I also turned to an interesting piece of evidence on the report concerning my alleged father. His father's occupation was listed as fire chief. We figured that leaving that occupation uncovered had to be a big mistake in the report. I often wondered if the woman standing at this subpar Xerox machine ever left little clues for me on purpose. Maybe she sympathized with the people who asked for this information and thought, Oh, what can I hurt if I throw them a tiny bone? Not only did we have his job title, we had a description. He was a striking six-foot-three-inch tall man. There could only be one fire chief in her hometown, right? We immediately started to call 411, looking for all the fire department non-emergency numbers. Where was Google when you really needed it? It would be years before we had that to help us. We filled our glasses with red wine courage and sat on Vicky's couch trying to decide what to say. How would we pull this information out of some stranger? We decided to pretend we were throwing a surprise family reunion for my elderly father. We wanted to get in touch with a branch of his family that he hadn't seen in a while. We just knew this cousin was a tall fire chief in 1968. Would you know who that statuesque fellow was? I practiced my best upstate accent on Vicky. We giggled and high-fived, and the call was placed. Hi, my name is Liz. I'm calling from Charleston, South Carolina. The man who answered the phone was too young to remember anyone like that, so the phone was passed around the room until we got an older fellow who thought he could help us. Now then, that sounds like Jimmy Conway, he said. 
I imagine this older man sitting at an aluminum dinner table, eating a bowl of fireman chili and flipping through a girly magazine, waiting for the piercing sound of the fire alarm to rouse him to duty. He's an old timer, all right. I want to say that man topped over six feet. Hey, that's amazing. I hate to be trouble, but you don't have a local phone book, do you? I'm calling from Charleston. We hung up with a phone number, and what we thought was our first big break, I could soon be talking to my grandfather. An elderly man answered my call that night, sitting in the comfort of his home. Hello, am I speaking to Chief Conway? Well, yes, ma'am, you sure are. He sounded so sweet and upbeat. Vicky sat next to me on her sofa. She was anxious for me, clutching her glass of wine, nodding, and encouraging me to keep going. Well, you don't know me. My name is Liz, and I'm calling from Charleston. My heart is beating wildly in my chest. Charleston. My wife and I love to see Charleston. Yes, sir, it sure is pretty. I'm so sorry to bother you this evening, but I have the most unusual question to ask you. If you are the fellow I'm looking for, you would have had a son who was about 26 or 27 in 1968. I scooted closer to Vicky and held the phone out for my ear so we could both listen. I was so nervous and excited. Oh, now I'm sorry you do have the wrong person. My wife and I never could have any children. Oh, I deflate. Vicky slumps back onto the couch in frustration. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, that was a long time ago, young lady. It's nothing to be sorry about now. Let me ask you, what made you call me? How did you get my name? Well, I'll tell you the truth, I said with nothing to lose. I'm an adopted child. I have very little information on my birth parents, but I do know that my grandfather would have been a six-foot-three-inch-tall fire chief in 1968 or thereabout. Is that so? He pondered the words I had just spoken as we sat in a brief silence. You wouldn't happen to know who I'm talking about from 1968, would you? I asked with the last bit of hope I had for this phone call. I'm sorry, young lady. I don't know how I can help you. Another long silence. I tell you what, though. You sound like a sweet girl, and I hope you find what you're looking for. I do, too, I said. It's not all that easy. He laughed. No, I imagine it isn't. But it sure would have been something else to find out I had a long-lost granddaughter out there looking for me. That sure would have been something. Many, many. Years later, I found out that that one clue in my report should have cracked this case wide open. Jimmy Conway knew exactly who I was talking about. He was keeping a secret. It was a long time before I knew he was not just protecting his fellow firemen. He was protecting me from a secret he must have thought I would not have handled very well back then. A tragedy within the family. A secret I still keep. Our dashed hopes turned to visions of driving upstate and doing some Cagney and Lacey type detective work, but there was always something. Work, family things. My soon-to-be ex, second husband, was still completely against our investigation and was not at all thrilled with the idea of my going any further down this road. He reminded me, No one has come looking for you in all these years. What makes you think your birth mother wants to hear from you? Ow. This was an awful thing to say to my naturally insecure self, and I let it almost completely extinguish the fire of hope 
that I had carried around for too long. Almost. Almost. 